us to the book of James. Can you all hear me okay through this? Good. Um, now, real quick, one of the announcements that we forgot was there is a women's retreat on October 4th, 5th, 6th. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So October 4th, 5th, 6th. Um, you can come and see Crystal Lee. She'll be um, in the back by the, the wooden map right there through the double doors at the end if you have not signed up or if you just like to have more information about it. It'll be a great time. Uh, the Women's Retreat will be the first one we've done. We're combining with another church. Um, be a great time, great experience, great fellowship and growth in the Word. So I encourage you uh, to sign up for that. Um, but here today, we're going to be di digging into the book of James. Now, James is very likely the earliest New Testament document that we have, probably written around 44 AD. And so who is James? Historically, it is believed that James is the younger brother of Jesus. So if that is true, then this James is also the very one who became the head of the Jerusalem church that we read about in Acts. Uh, now, not everyone has been a fan of the book of James. It is a very hard book. There are lots of commands in James. Uh, the famous reformer Martin Luther said this, James is an epistle of straw compared to these others, meaning the letters of Paul, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So Martin Luther's um, assessment of the book of James is that it was uh, void of the gospel. And so Martin Luther contributed many great things, uh, has helped greatly throughout church history, um, but he is not perfect. And this would definitely be one of those areas where he uh, was not able to see the truth as well. Um, because as we come through the book of James, we're going to see that this is an inspired letter by the Spirit, and the entire message flows out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one interesting observation um, about this book is that it pulls very heavily from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is taught by Jesus. You can find it in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So one possible reason uh, for this is that James and John, or James and Jesus, were both speaking to a similar audience. Ja Jesus was speaking primarily to a Jewish audience about how to live the Christian life. What does it look like to have faith in Jesus? Now, in verse 1, we read that James is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Uh, very likely, this refers to Jewish Christians who are spread out throughout the Roman Empire. So this means James is also speaking to Jewish Christians about how to live the Christian life. James is helping his readers how to understand how not to blend in with this world, but how to just how to live distinctly Christian lives. Or to say it this way, James teaches that we are a particular people called to live in a particular way, meaning we are chosen by God, saved by his grace, to live in a distinct, holy way on this earth. His letter is given so we would know what it looks like to live by faith. And so if you've ever wondered, what does it look like to live by faith? If we were just to, to, to flesh out the practicalness of our faith, what would that look like? That is what James is largely addressing. And his letter is full of commands. There's about 51 commands in the book, which is approximately one for every other verse in the letter. So he's constantly pointing his finger saying, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. So if you're ever wondering, what does it look like to live the Christian life? James is very much 
addressing that. Now, we'll try not to finger point as we go throughout, um, but literally that's kind of how James is, is fleshing out the Christian life. So my prayer as we go through this book is that God would use it powerfully to convict us, to challenge us, and to change us. As he's saying, this is what it looks like to have faith. And so as, as we are growing in our faith, as we're trying to live in accordance to the word of God, I pray that it convicts us, challenges us, and changes us so that we would live as God calls us, empowered by his spirit through grace. And so what I'm going to do now is uh, read the first 12 verses of chapter 1, and I want to invite you to stand as we read. We stand at the reading of God's word as a means of reminding us that this word is inspired by the very word of God, by his Holy Spirit, for the purpose of our correction, for our teaching, and for our training in righteousness. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this letter that you have given us. We thank you for James, the brother of Jesus, whom you have saved by your grace, who he has written this for the purpose of our edification, for the purpose of communicating how we are to live out our faith. And God, I pray that as we come to this message, that you would use it Challenge us, convict us, change us. Lord, especially as we look at trials today. And Lord, we know that there are trials, there's brokenness all in this world. May this word that you have given us change the way we see trials. Give us wisdom today that we would rightly understand trials, that we might rightly respond to trials. And may we do so with the joy that you have given us in your son, Jesus. In your name, amen. You all may be seated. So we'll come back to kind of the, the greeting and the intro that James gives in a later sermon. But if you notice, it's very short. James, the servant of God, Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes into the dispersion, greetings. And now he's just going to jump right in to trials and suffering and saying, we should have joy in them. I mean, he jumps right into the deep end, and this is how James is. If you look at Paul, Paul writes the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters is argument and theology. 
And then the last few chapters, 12 through 16, very practical. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, heavy theology. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Paul, heavy practical in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. James just goes straight from the beginning. This is what it looks like to live the Christian life. And he just goes one after another. And so I want to remind us of just the context as, as he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, the dispersion really began back in 722 B.C. when Assyria conquered Israel, the northern tribe, and they took them and uh, took them captive, and Israel began to be spread out among the nations. And then in 586, Judah was captured, which is the southern kingdom, by Babylon. And so all of Israel, all of uh, these Jewish people who had once lived together in a centralized land are now spread out over all the known world. And so when the church begins, and we see in the book of Acts that it begins and soon persecution comes, and that when persecution comes, the Christians, who are largely Jewish at this time, are spread out into the Roman Empire. They go into Jerusalem, Judea, into the ends of the earth. And so they're going into these other areas of the known world where there are also Jewish communities. But rather than being received by these Jewish communities, they are persecuted by them. So the Christians are being persecuted by the Gentiles, and they're also being persecuted by the Jews. They're being robbed of their possessions, they're mistreated, they're hauled into court, they have less standing than slaves. There are some who have said these 12 tribes, meaning God's uh, people, who have now been spread out throughout the Roman Empire, um, is to be able to be compared to the post-Holocaust Jews and the misery and the persecution that they are suffering at this time. And so when James begins and says, count it all joy, my brothers, I mean, at the beginning, you can kind of like, do you know your audience? You know who you're writing to? I mean, this is a little prosperity gospel is sounding from the very beginning. Hey, guys, you can have joy. But yet as we dig into this message, we see why we actually do have joy and what is uh, James helping us to see because he's wanting us to see the practicality of our faith that because we are Christians, we see trials differently. Because we are Christians, the way we care for the poor and the needy is different, which we'll see a lot in chapter 2. The way, because we're Christians, the way we use our words, chapter 3, is different. And he fleshes out this kind of wisdom and holy type living in chapters 4 and 5. And he actually is going to bring it back to suffering and trials at the very end of the book. And so he is wanting us to see, because of our faith, we live in a particular way. We see things differently. The wisdom that God has given us enables us to live a distinct holy life. And so the first point we have is that we are to joyfully persevere in trials because we know their purpose. And so let me just clarify a few things before we dig in. First, let me say what James does not mean by the words joyfully persevere. He's not saying we look forward to trials. We don't long for the next difficult day like we long for the weekend to come when we're on Monday. Nor is he saying we love being in difficult circumstances. He's not saying when kind of all hell breaks loose or there's family problems or you're, um, you've been diagnosed with disease that you go, well, this is great. I mean, let's have some joy. Like, that's not 
what he is saying at those times. We don't love the trial itself. Second, what trials is James actually referring to? The word various that he uses means many or great diversity. So James is referring to all kinds of trials. Sickness, abuse, neglect, difficult relationships like a spouse, a child, a co-worker. Trials refer to persecution, suffering. Everything that we encounter in the Christian life is what he's meaning by this blanket statement. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Whatever comes your way, you can count as joy. What James is wanting us to know is that everything that comes our way has a divine purpose. This means there's no trial that enters your life, my life, as a result of chaos or random chance. Do you know that? Sometimes we forget that, I think, in the trial, but we're to remind ourselves of that. In fact, if we go to like the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, he echoes this truth. Many of you know this story. Joseph was sold into slavery. He spent time in jail, but eventually God uses him to become second in command of all Egypt, where he saves Israel from a famine. And this is what he says at the very end of the book to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says this, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant this trial, he meant it for good to bring about the many people that bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And we see that theme all throughout scripture is that God uses trials for our good, for his glory, that they are divinely orchestrated. And so we must know, and what James is wanting us to know is that trials have a divine purpose in them. And so what is this purpose that then would cause us to joyfully persevere? Well, if you continue, if you look at verse 3, we see that verse 3, trials test our faith. The word test means to show the genuineness. Trials reveal what is truly in our heart, what we actually believe, who we trust in, what satisfies our soul, what is most important to us. It's, it's unearthing what's really at the core of your heart. So in my house, we have, um, I just forget what it's called. Uh, we, we raise fires in our backyard over a what? Uh, a fire pit. I'm <laughs> like, the word fire pit escaped me. Um, so we have a fire pit in the backyard, and we do, uh, we do s'mores on them throughout the summer. My kids love s'mores, and we enjoy doing them. And we have these big, long metal pokers that, you know, you stick into the fire. But what happens after you do the s'more? You, you take it off. What's left on the metal poker? You still got goo and gunk, right? So how do you get it off? You take your finger and wipe it off? Don't do that. But you stick it back in the fire, right? You stick it back in the fire, and the heat of the fire begins to melt off the, the s'more, the marshmallow, so that only the metal is left. It takes away all that's not there and reveals what is supposed to be there, reveals the genuineness of, of the poker there. That's what trials do. Trials are the fire that melt off all that we say we believe, and they reveal what we actually do believe. But the point of trials does not stop there. You see, it not only reveals, but it also builds and molds. And we see that as we, as we continue in verse 3, this testing of our faith produces steadfastness, meaning patience, meaning endurance. And in verse 4, we see this steadfastness results in us being made perfect, complete 
lacking in nothing. Now, the word perfect means mature, whole, not childish. Now, not, he's not saying not childlike because we know we're to have childlike faith and that we trust and we depend upon God. But we're not to have childish faith, immature faith. In fact, Paul in Corinthians and the writer of Hebrews will both rebuke their readers because they have remained childish rather than growing into maturity. And so uh, the word perfect means not childish, but to be whole, to be mature. Uh, So what does that mean? Well, Paul in Ephesians 4, he says that maturity is us becoming more like Jesus. And really, that's, that's what James has in mind here as we're coming into his word. It's this faith that we have is to uh, enable us to live like Christ. And the way that we become more like Christ are these trials that God uses to mold us, to build us, to mature us so that we would become more like Christ. And isn't that the purpose of our salvation? The purpose of our salvation is what? That we would become like Jesus. Um, give you a couple examples. Romans eight twenty nine, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? To be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if you are saved here, the purpose of God's choosing, the purpose of God's grace coming upon you is not that you would stay as you are, but that you'd be changed into the very image of his son. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless. Well, who is holy and blameless? Jesus is holy and blameless. And so the purpose of our salvation is that we'd be made like Christ. He saves us where we're at, right? He just doesn't keep us where we're at. He changes us, gives us a new identity, gives us his spirit that he would be in us, that we would live like him, that we would grow in maturity. And so why do we joyfully persevere in these trials? Because the trials aren't perfect, aren't pointless. They're the divine means in which we become like Christ, and that's where the joy is. It's not the trials that we love. We're not longing for pain. The woman who is pregnant, giving birth, doesn't love the labor, right? But what does she love? What comes after the labor pains? We love what is produced through the trials. God has saved us to enjoy him. God has saved us that we would be full of joy. But the way that we grow in this joy, the way that we will enjoy him, is by becoming more and more like his son, Jesus. So trials are the path to glory and joy. They're the path to us being glorified with him. They're the path to us being full of joy. Not only now, but when Christ returns, that we would have that fullness of joy for all of eternity with him. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Before Israel enters the promised land, where do they go? They go through 40 years of the desert wilderness, right, interactive. We haven't done that for a couple weeks. All right, so we go through the wilderness, right? So before they enter in the promised land, experience the blessings of God in the land of promise, they go through wilderness where they're being going through trials and they're learning about the character of God who provides for them. Before we enter into the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, we then are likened to going through what? The wilderness of this earth. This is where we experience trials. 
the testing of our faith, so that what? As we enter into the promised land, the new heavens and new earth, we'd be full of joy as we've learned who our God is. Even Jesus, before he, um, before he was glorified, or the path to glory was what? Was through the trial of the cross. Glory, the path to glory is always through the, um, through the path of trials. Is how we, we move to glory, and it's how we grow in our joy. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. This is regarding Jesus. For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the word perfect is the same word we have here in James. And it means to be matured. It means to be qualified. So, James, so it says Jesus was qualified to bring all of us and all of the church into glory through suffering. And in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we read Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross for what? For joy. It was for the joy set before him that he endured. It's not that he loved the cross. You and I, we don't love the trial. Joseph, when he's sold into slavery, when he's sitting in jail, is not going, man, this is, this is great. I love being molded right now. I love the process of maturity. Like he's not loving the pain, but when we see what it's producing, there is a joy in it. And that's what Jesus does. He endures the cross for the joy and the glory on the other side. Now, if we come back to James chapter 1, verse 12, the one who remains steadfast receives a reward. So what is this reward? It says the crown of life. Well, well, what does that refer to? Well, surely it means being made like Jesus. Surely it means reigning with him forever in all of eternity. This is what James wants us to see. This is what he wants us to know. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Trials produce steadfastness that would be made perfect. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He's letting us know there is a reward. The trials are not pointless. You are being made mature. Glory is being prepared. Your joy is being increased. And there is a crown waiting for you. Will you be perfectly made like Christ? Will you reign with him on his throne? That's what we read in Revelation chapter 3, I think verse 20. For all of eternity, sharing in all the glory and all the joy of Jesus Christ. But trials have a mean of, means of weighing us down, don't they? Especially the longer they go. I think what they do is they often weigh us down. So rather than looking forward to the crown of life, we begin to look down on the ground before us. And when that happens, the trial looks much bigger. We wonder if there is hope. We wonder if God is still with us. We wonder if there's purpose. You ever wonder that? The longer you're in a trial, the longer the pain exists, the longer the disability is with you, the longer you're in that strained relationship, do you wonder, is, is, is it going to get better? Does God know? And the trial begins to kind of get bigger. And oftentimes, rather than looking forward to the crown of life, rather than remembering, oh, this, this is for my good, God is growing me right now, we begin to see this is just negative. There's no good in me at all. Have you, have you ever been there? 
I think we've all been there, and I guarantee you, you know someone who has been there and probably someone who's there right now. And so, James is wanting us to know, yes, there is a purpose. He's calling us to keep our eyes up. He wants us to keep on the crown of life, calling us to have the eternal perspective, to see the glory awaits us. But that's hard, and we know that's hard. And so what do we do when it's hard? What do we do when we begin to see only the trial and we're not able to see the purpose that God is doing, where the joy is fading? What do we do at that moment? This is where we come into our next point. Wisdom is God's grace given to us so we can joyfully persevere. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, James is saying, when you're struggling for joy in trials, what do we do? Ask for wisdom. That's the connection. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Now notice what James does not say. He doesn't say, well, you just need to try harder. You need to believe more. You know, just put it in second gear. No, he says, pray. Depend upon God. Ask God for wisdom. And this wisdom is, is having the mind of Christ. It's seeing things as God sees them. The wisdom enables us to rightly understand the trials that we are in and continue to trust in God. And so what happens when we ask for wisdom? What happens? This is our interaction time. God gives it. Isn't that cool? Like he's saying, you're struggling in trials. Pray. See if it happens. Good luck. No, he says, and God gives it. Now, why? Why does God give it? Look at verse 5. Who gives generously. Who is this that gives generously? God. He gives because he's generous. He loves to give gifts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us to pray. Notice how Jesus motivates us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this in Matthew 7, 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. So he's basically calling us all evil in the sense that we're not perfect. We sin. He's saying, if, if you can give good gifts to your children, which I think most of us probably desire to do that, he says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good give things to those who ask him? Do you see the motivation? If, if you, well, you're not perfect, you're not holy, you're sinful, but yet you know how to give good things. When you come to our perfect heavenly Father and you pray for wisdom that you would persevere in trials and maintain faith in him, what's he going to do? He's going to give it. He loves to give. So I encourage you to pray. Pray because our God is generous. Pray because he loves to give. And notice what the condition is to receive the gift. There's a condition. A lot of times we say, well, there's no condition. There is conditions in our faith. What's the condition to receiving wisdom? We must ask. I wonder how many Christians would joyfully persevere through trials if they only obeyed this command. How many of us go through trials, struggling constantly because we never actually ask for wisdom? I think we often think of God like Santa Claus. Like we can just sit and he's going to show up with this big red bag of gifts and he's just going to give it to us. We're going to be like, oh, this is great. But rather God in trials is teaching us to depend upon him, to trust him, to remember his generosity. We're not earning He's saying, look, I'm willing. I have all these gifts for you. Will you depend upon me? Will you exercise your faith 
and trust me that I will help you in this trial. And then as we ask, as we pray, it unleashes the bountiful gifts of God. He would give them to us to sustain us, not to remove the trial necessarily. This is no prosperity gospel, but to sustain us, to strengthen us that we would have joy in these trials. I encourage you, wherever you're at, uh, to begin practicing just prayer more in your life. There are apps that are out there. This is actually really good. There's an app called Echo I use. And it's great because you can kind of put your prayers in there. It gives you reminders. You can assign them for different days of the week. All of these kind of things. Um, it helps you just walk through prayers. It helps you be intentional in prayer. I encourage you to write things down. Set a time aside. Set, set a time aside? Set time aside for prayer. That's a means of exercising a faith. That's a means of coming toward God knowing that he's generous. Knowing that he wants to give. But in verses 6 through 8, Jesus teaches us that there's also a wrong, or James teaches us there's also a wrong way to pray to God. He says, don't ask with doubt. Verse 7 says that person won't receive anything. In verse 8, James says that person is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So what does it mean to be double-minded? To be double-minded is to have uh, your allegiance split. It means you're trying to be in two places at once. Have you ever tried to do that? It's quite difficult. Think of it like this. One person, you're standing on a dock, and you place one foot on the dock and one, pla- one foot on the boat. Trying to be in both. I want to be in the boat, but I really like the stability of the dock. And then what happens as the boat moves away? Can you remain in two places at once? And if you try, you're going to get wet, Right? It's impossible. I wonder um, how often we do that. We come to God, we say, God, I want you to help, but we're really not trusting in him. We're really, that's just kind of the um, throwing out the life preserver type. Well, we'll see if God answers, but I'm going to keep doing exactly what I've been doing. I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to try to work this out on my own. But God, if you're listening, I'd love some help. But I'm just going to continue acting as if you're not actually there do we ever pray like that i think i think this is just to cause us to pause when we pray are we trusting in god fully or are we going you know i I don't actually know if god's going to help here i don't actually know if he can help i'm going to maybe just try to you know have one foot with god and one foot in this world and what james is teaching us no as christians we're in christ there's no dual citizenship here. We are in Christ. Our citizenship, citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Let us trust in him as our God, as our Savior, to provide all that we need. So how do we combat this doubt? I think there's two ways, at least, two truths. Number one, we remember that God is generous. We need to come back to the truth. God is generous. And that God will give us wisdom. God will give us all that we need. And let us remember the cross. If God sent his son Jesus to die for us, if he was generous in the giving of his son, will he hold anything back from us now? No. And we find that truth. Actually, Romans 8.32. Everyone here needs to know Romans 8.32. This verse is amazing for fighting doubt, especially in trials. Notice the logic. Verse 32 of Romans 8. 
It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Okay, so this is what God has done at the cross. He gave his son Jesus to die for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's literally saying, if God gave his son Jesus to die, which is by far the greatest act of love that he could do, why would he now not give a little bit of wisdom to help him solve? If he was willing to go this far, will he not give grace? Will he not give wisdom? Will he not give you patience? Will he not help you in the trials that you're in? Of course he will. If he's done the greater, he will surely do the lesser. That is the logic that Paul gives us. This is an excellent verse to know. To fight when we're in those trials. Is God listening? Is God, is God going to help? Does God care? Yes, he cares. Yes, he listens. Yes, he can provide. Why? Because he gave everything at the cross through his son Jesus. So now all the needs that we have, all the pains, all the trials, all the things that we endure, yes, he will meet us through his great abundance, through his generousness, his generosity, that he will provide all that we need. Now, in verses 9 through 11, it appears that James may have switched topics on us. He now starts talking about rich people and starts talking about poor people. Um, but if you're to look at verse 12 and really the remaining parts of the verses all the way to verse 18, it looks like we're still talking about trials. It looks like we're still talking about temptations and doubts and, and the perseverance in trials. So it doesn't look like verses 9 through 11 are to be seen as a different topic, but rather... They're to help us to understand how do we endure trials that we would do so with joy. So what is he doing here? I think he's giving us a warning. He's saying, beware of how finances affect the way you view trials. Have you ever considered that? How does your money, abundance, or lack affect the way you view trials? Now it's here we really begin to see the pastoral heart of James. As he's, he's called us to endure, to have joy. Now he's meeting to exactly where we're at, saying some of you, you're going to struggle this way. Some of you are going to struggle this way. To the poor, he says the poor may become bitter. They may think only if they had more money or more privilege or better luck, then they would not be in the position that they're in. They're like, well, it's just because we don't have money. It's just because we don't have resources. just because we don't have a better house. If we had those things, we would not be in this trial. But verse 9 says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So he calls him to boast. Then, then he turns to the poor. Now the rich, they often may think they should not suffer. And if they do, what are they tempted to trust in? Their riches. Exactly. Good interaction. Golden stars. Um, so what they do, they trust in their riches, their intellect, their resources, their insurance, the doctors that they can afford. Thus James calls them, boast in your humiliation. He says riches are like grass in the field. It's here one day and gone the next. See, James wants us to see our spiritual position is much more primary and essential than our physical or financial position. The poor can boast that despite their circumstances, they're a child of God. They're a citizen of God's kingdom. They know that this earth is not their eternal home. Their eternal home and inheritance is secure in Christ Jesus, who rose from the grave and conquered sin, death, and Satan. In Romans 8, 17, we are called co-heirs with Christ, which means all that Christ possesses, because we are a co-heir with him, we share also with him. Isn't that incredible? 
So while we may appear in great poverty here, we can boast, oh, because of all that we have in Christ. It's not because of our effort, but because of what God has given us in Jesus. Now, the rich can boast in their humiliation. Now, how is that true? Well, think about Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we see, G, we see that Jesus leaves the throne room. In, in a sense, takes off his glory, comes in humiliation, clothed as a man that he would do what? That he would die on a cross so that all who believe in him would be saved. And so, only through humiliation was Christ glorified. So the rich can boast because they know their earthly riches are not the source of their joy. Their earthly riches are not the path to glory. Jesus is their joy. And the trial therein is making them more like Christ. You see, trials come for the poor and the rich. And our trials are a means of making us both more like Christ, revealing the beauty of the gospel. It's as we go through trials, we demonstrate the beauty and the worth of Christ Jesus in the world from different perspectives. So James wants us to realize that our finances have a hold on our heart and often we're not aware of it. So I encourage you, just whatever trial you're in, think through how you begin to analyze how you're thinking through that trial. Are you looking at, man, if only I had this, 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 I wouldn't have it as the poor person does. Or do you look at it as, man, I've accomplished this, I've done this, I have this. I shouldn't be in this trial. I can probably buy my way out, reason my way out, find resources to remove myself from this trial. And what James is saying is, hold on, for both the rich and the poor, God is drawing us close to him that we would trust in him. That our lives would mirror Christ. And that there would be a testimony to this world on what God has done for us. So I want to close then by just reminding us of one particular truth. And this is a truth I think we need to remind one another. We need to remind ourselves, but we really need to remind one another when we're in trials. So my last point is just remember in Christ Jesus you are blessed. So where do we get this? Verse 12. James calls his readers blessed. Now, <clears throat> now remember, they're all going through trials. As we go through this book, we're going to see trial after trial after trial they're going through. So being blessed does not mean the absence of trials. So trials, difficulties, suffering is not just for unbelievers. But James openly admits, as Christians, we live in a broken world, and thus we experience brokenness. So when trials come, he's saying we're not to doubt our salvation. We're not to think God has forgotten us. We're not to throw up our hands in despair. He's saying you are blessed. He's wanting to remind us of the divine purpose that is there for us, that this trial is for our joy. And because of that, you can know that you are blessed. Your physical circumstances are not the indication of your blessing. The salvation you have in Jesus is why you are blessed. So I want to just remind you of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you know the Sermon on the Mount, or at least parts of it, but I'm sure most of you all remember how the Sermon on the Mount begins. In chapter 5, it starts like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So what is, what is Jesus doing here? What is he describing? What type of life is he describing? It's the Christian life, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted. So literally, J- Jesus is saying, if you go through persecution, there's a blessing in that. And what is James saying in his letter, the brother of Jesus? There's a blessing in persecution. You can count it for joy. So no, in trials you are blessed. All these blessings are used to describe the Christian life. You are blessed because God's grace is for you in Christ. That means trials are given to increase your joy as they make us more like Christ. Now, sin and Satan, as we've taught, they want, us to, uh, they want to tempt us to think that we're in trials because we're not blessed. And we're not loved by God. Or possibly because God is simply not strong enough to help us. Have you ever been in a conversation with uh, a Christian who begins to say things like that? Or begins at least believe things like that just turn all the way to the end of james real quick the last two verses in james james chapter 5 verse 19 he says my brothers if anyone among you wonders from the truth so who's he talking to if anyone among you wonders so he's talking to the church if someone wonders from the truth. Now, right before this, it's all about trials. It's all about suffering. If anyone wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So when we see a fellow brother or sister struggling in trials, beginning to question God, begin to wonder, is God there? Maybe begin to throw their hands up and saying, I, I don't know if there's any hope in this. What do we do? We go to them, right? We go to them. And what do we say? We remind them of the purpose of the trial. We remind them that our God is generous and that we can pray to him. We remind them of the cross and that because God generously gave his son Jesus for us, he will generously give us everything we need now. We remind them that they are blessed, that there's a crown of life awaiting them. We come alongside and we shepherd their hearts at that moment. We give them the gospel. We give them that wisdom that they need, that divine perspective that is there that they would know that they're not um, being ignored by God, that the presence of their trials is not the absence of God. We remind them of those truths. The world says because there are bad things that happen in this world, we should not believe in God. But James says our God is bigger than all the calamities of the world. In fact, he's so powerful, he uses them through his sovereign power for the good of his children. God is the perfect father who's bent on bringing us, his children, into maturity, the likeness of Jesus. He does that through trials, and he does it with us going to other believers, sharing the good news of Jesus sharing the wisdom that we need for those who are in trials. So I want to encourage you, when we see those struggling around us, we do not move away. We do not say they need space. We do not say, well, I don't really want to jump in on that. We don't say, that gets icky, that gets messy. Yeah, it does get messy. And Satan wants nothing more to continue to draw that person away. But God has placed us together in covenanting membership 
for the purpose that we would go after one another and even plug table groups. It is a means of us making sure our relationships are growing closer and closer with one another so that we would know one another, so we would share the trials that we're in with one another, so we can pray for one another, so we can come alongside locking arms with each other, spurring one another on in the faith. Trials are not the absence of God. They're his loving hand conforming us to the image of his son for our joy and for his glory. So I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're struggling in a trial, pray. And pray to God. Pray knowing he's generous. Pray. Remember the cross. And as you look at the cross, remember that because God gave his son, he will give all that you need now to stand firm in your trials. And if you're here today and you know someone who's in a trial, go to them. Pray with them. Meet with them. Call them. Let us not stand away from them. But as Christians, we move together to help one another. So as you pray, know that God opens the storehouses in heaven to bountifully provide all that we need. Our God is good and he's generous. And because of that, we can joyfully persevere in trials, knowing that he is using them for our good, that we grow in our joy and for his glory. So I want to pray, and then we'll uh, have the men come down where we will partake of communion. Our Father.